Welcome to the C Word that can serve this podcast. Today we're talking about gap filling. I'm Jen Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Welcome, everyone. Ooh, hello. Hello. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about gap filling. Uh, so the title of the episode is Mind the Gap, because we're clever. <laughs> um, <laughs> Aren't we witty? <laughs> um, and uh, I had a slight crisis as I started preparing for this episode, because it's been on the list for a while, because it's a great topic and really relevant to multiple disciplines of conservation, I would say. Uh, I started thinking about what is gap filling? And then my lockdown brain went into some sort of crisis mode of, is everything gap filling? <laughs> Is gap filling it the only thing that exists? And it's like, it's it's not. What are you doing, brain? And it's like, but, 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 boy, where do we draw the line? And I just had like, I just completely spiraled out of control. So um, may- maybe someone else should like talk about what gap filling is. Because <laughs> now I'm like, it's, it's, it can be so much. But anyway, what is gap filling? Why do we do that? I don't like the term gap filling. Oh, excellent. Oh, we're starting strong. Or at least when I was a student, I called it gap filling. And then I kind of moved to calling it loss compensation instead, which I think is a broader term and sort of helps you move away from the idea of just filling in holes. Oh, you know what? That's fantastic. I kind of enjoy that. Strangely strikes me as a kind of academic term that I haven't really seen that much like in like, I was going to say real life, but that's not that's not what I mean. I just meant like when talking to people, I feel like no one says loss compensation in like a casual conversation. But that doesn't mean that it's not a great term. Like that's actually really clever. I like that. Well, maybe it's because I, I know quite a few paintings conservators and I'm pretty sure they don't say gap filling. No, that They say retouching, which yes. is another idea altogether. So I think also there's quite a lot of differences in terminology, but also in concept between the various conservation disciplines. And I think that's one of the issues we've had is is we're not necessarily all talking about the same sort of thing. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I found really interesting. And when I started thinking about this, it was like, oh, we all kind of do it, but we do call it slightly different things. And we do approach it radically differently, you know, depending on what it is that we're trying to achieve. I think loss compensation is good because it's more holistic in terms of what it's trying to say. So, for non-conservatives listening, that might be the more understandable phrase in some ways, because it's not always a gap as such. It's mm. it, it is it is about a loss that's that we are trying to not hide, but we yeah. Then we get into complicated things immediately. <laughs> I literally always, whenever I hear the the phrase gap filling, I literally always think ceramics and exactly yes. Yeah. You're putting paste into a thing and you're smoothing it down and it's squidgy and this is so specific in my head. Yeah. (laughs) And it's only since it was only when I was thinking about it for this episode that I was like, well, obviously all the stuff I do with textiles that involves loss compensation. Of course that's gap filling, but it's just not squidgy and wet and with ceramics. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because like the I would say that the top three things that I think of when I think gap fill is ceramics. Because uh, that's something that I feel like we did try as students, like we were very encouraged to try. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I think of is glass, because often there, there's like a, almost like an optical illusion thing of you need it to look like the glass and not be distracting and all that stuff. Gaffling glass is like horrendous. Um, you know, it's probably lovely. There are probably loads of you out there who are really into it. I'm not. Um, 
<laughs> and then furniture conservation involves a lot of that sort of thing as well. Oh, like I, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, and uh, that, but uh-huh. that's like a really different approach to it as well because it's like all about like what you build it up of and it needs to like carry a lot of weight and, you know, like we talk about how like, you know, for a ceramic, yeah, it does need to take like a certain amount of weight depending on where it is and what kind of ceramic it is and all that stuff, right? But like it's, it's not a load-bearing leg. <laughs> mm, you know, for the most part, it just needs to feel right. Well, no, I think sometimes it does. I've So I've done a ceramic sarcophagus. A what now? Which was about seven feet long. Wow. That's insane. But that was a massive object where I spent the whole time absolutely shitting myself that the object would literally <laughs> fall apart if I didn't get the fills right. You know, sometimes there are large things. And I think in my mind, there are sort of two reasons really why you might fill gaps or compensate for losses. And one is structural and the other is aesthetic. Yes. So I, I wrote down what are our reasons to gap fill. And it basically went with strength, appearance and possibly functionality. But mm-hmm kind of adjacent to the others in some ways but then this is all like a venn diagram isn't it but then is it i mean if you're a horological conservator and you're replacing some missing cogs filling in some of those so that it will work again is that loss compensation gap filling or is that just repair no that's true because a lot of the things that i was thinking of was like is this just repair but is repair just what we would call it if we were talking to like a normal human being (laughs) Mm. <laughs> like it's is is gap filling and loss conversation the words that we use in the profession and other people would just see it as repair. I, I don't know because it it is a blurred boundary and it's Um I don't know about that because I think I think the public is very aware of restoration as a concept, mm. particularly when it comes to paintings as well. So yeah. not mm. just repair, but Yeah, that's a good point actually. So gap filling or loss compensation is simply put adding more material in the process of conservation to affect the appearance. I mean, yeah, I suppose there's no way. So it's not, for example, consolidation because that's supposed to be invisible. That's a good point. So I was like, well, it's not always aesthetic, but you write that it always adds something and that it will always alter something about the how it looks because that the whole thing is that it's compensated for our loss so it, it will add something yeah. in terms of looks. So it's not meant to be invisible. Yeah. It's just that we often think of it as being as subtle as possible even though you can actually see the physical new material again this is something that really differs i would say across the world Mm. christina was it you who told us the amazing story about how uh, ceramics at the british museum at one point they were like in painted in such a way that like you couldn't tell that anything had ever been done to them uh yeah to wind it back a bit i'm talking about a collection of vases that i worked on when i was working on the greek gallery refurbishment at the fitzwilliam museum in Cambridge and we had a very large collection of these vases that were in the 19th century sent off to be expertly restored using the sort of -of state-of-the-art techniques that were around at the time. So they sent them off to the British Museum because that was the place where they knew what they were doing and in order to get the best possible aesthetic result they filed down all the break edges. They they beveled the edges so that on the outer surface there were kind of v-shaped channels along all the breaks and then those were filled with plaster so that's the best way you see to ensure that the breakages match up perfectly especially at a time when the adhesives were quite thick and gloopy so you couldn't get very close joins and then in order to disguise all of this the whole surface um, was overpainted very very heavily i don't know if you know about attic vases they're the sort of um, red and black vases Mm. that you think of when you think of greek pots 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. But there's, there's, there's two types of attic vases, basically, red figure and black figure. And a lot of them have pictures from mythology or pictures of people fighting, war scenes, domestic scenes, all kinds of things. They were highly prized. They were very heavily collected in the 19th century. And this is quite important. They were valued a lot for their aesthetic properties, which I think is one of the reasons why mm-hmm. people restored them to such a high degree was because they were seen as art objects not just as kind of grubby old archaeological Mm. pots even though obviously they are archaeological but at some point sort of maybe 20 years after the Fitzwilliam vases had been restored like this at the British Museum they decided that they wanted to study the paintings on them more closely so all of the areas that had paintings on depictions of people so not just the plain black areas were then de-restored and so then of course they went from looking absolutely flawless to looking really crappy in comparison, as the conservator working on these objects for display, redisplay in the galleries in the 21st century, it was it left us with this real dilemma about what do we do with them. Yeah. There, there are several really interesting stories they can tell. Do we want to emphasise their original archaeological history, if you like, and do what people might have automatically mm. done 30, 40, 50 years ago, which is to, is, is to try and make them look as they would have done in 300 BC, for example? Or do we want to bring out this really interesting restoration history and what it says about priorities and interests and so on in the 19th century and approaches to restoration? Or do we want to go for some kind of hybrid thing that leaves them looking a bit less awful, um, but still makes it obvious that they have been broken um, and not just broken, but also almost deliberately damaged and mul- repaired multiple times? Or, you know, how, how do we how do we approach these as objects? Because leaving them as they mm-hmm. were is a difficult decision, I think, because it really does damage the aesthetic properties of it and because they are vases that have pictures on them and aren't just it's not just a a plain surface it's something that is representative then I feel you lose quite a lot when it's damaged in terms of readability of the image and that is of course one of the things and I feel like this does very much kind of go into the territory of wall paintings paintings ceramics where it's it does tend to be no, I feel like it's wrong to say more aesthetic, but it's like, it's all these interesting things. And I've loved talking to ceramics conservators about whether they kind of enjoy doing the kind of really pretty, you know, infilling where it's like, you can't tell that it's there or it's difficult to tell and then it, we're we're coming we're coming down to like you can tell when it's up close but you can't tell from afar and that seems to have been the kind of aesthetic middle ground or like the ethical middle ground that we've all kind of gone for as a thing that we accept is that well can it can look pretty as long as you can tell up close that it's it's a it's a new it's a later edition we kind of allow more for that in some things than in others but as soon as you start kind of broadening the conversation a little bit from maybe calling a gap filling like we've already discussed into something more like loss compensation then do we blur the lines even further because i'm thinking of some of the stuff that you know is done to like natural history stuff for example where it's like you might felt a fur patch to like hide a bald spot that's where it's just been nibbled by um pests or something you know like so you can actually look at an animal and not just go (laughs) funny it's got a bald spot um (laughs) because that kind of just destroys the entire like experience i think that's a really interesting point and i actually another thing i hadn't thought of because i was so distracted by textiles natural history is a really feel quite emotional one and i think maybe emotion has quite a lot to do with this because it's Mm. easier to look at a ceramic with 
loads of bits missing as long as they're sort of supported and they look safe. Mm-hmm. But then if I would try and kind of convince myself that I'd also like to see natural history collections with all of the damage present, I really don't want to see that. I really, I don't want to go to a room full of taxidermy and see all the sorry animals looking bald and like really sad and gross. I think that would be very upsetting because... Oh, that's so interesting. Not only is it a dead animal, but it's also in a right state. And I know this, the, the, the um, website Crap Taxidermy <laughs> is hilarious, but it's also really disturbing and quite upsetting and unsettling. So I was all ready to think this is an academic decision, but actually it has much more to do with emotion. I hadn't even approached it from that angle. Like, But you're right. That bit is emotional. Mm. What do you think, Christina? What specifically about taxidermy? Uh, specifically about the role of emotion in our decision making for gap fills i don't know about emotion i mean i'm not sure that you can make a clear distinction between emotion and uh, intellectual decisions if you like because i think humans have a huge capacity for self-deception anyway (laughs) and also a huge capacity for retrospective justification of decisions that they basically want to make anyway Ah, and are going to justify if they can find any way to do it whatsoever and I think that the role of sort of gut feeling Mm. is often underestimated in conservation but I Mm, think that a lot of the time people will know when something looks satisfying or not (laughs) And that's not something you can necessarily draw up firm guidelines for, but you can say, yes, this works or this doesn't. And to some extent, that's an aesthetic decision, but I guess it's also partly an emotional decision as well. Does this feel right? I mean, we did talk about this during our studies as well, but it's something that, you know, every now and then, if you go to like a museum and you're with other people, whether they're museum professionals or regular human beings, then I like having the kind of conversation of, like, if I see like a particular kind of infill or something then I like having the conversation of oh what do you think of that like and like for example I I love doing it when it's like one that's been left intentionally blank because I feel like at one point it was quite not maybe not in vogue but like to leave uh, say a a ceramic with like a kind of a off-white but not at all in painted kind of little fill totally yeah 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 I don't know what era that is, but that was definitely a thing for a while. It was kind of 70s, 80s often. They they called them neutral gap fills and it was quite a big thing in archaeological conservation. Yes, that's a good point because what I'm thinking of is like big massive urns that have been, you know, dug up. Yeah. And... I like having the kind of conversation of what do you think of that? Like, does that tell you something? Does it, how do you respond to that? And you get all sorts of interesting reactions from people from that's ugly, it's distracting to I don't really care to uh, what means that they've done something to it and they wanted us to know that. And I, I love having those kinds of conversations. So this is quite similar to the stuff that I spoke to um, a student called Ellie Sweetnam about. So visible repairs, but disruptive repairs. Oh. Hi, everyone. Today I'm speaking with a student of conservation at Cardiff University who's got a rather interesting attitude to gap filling. Ellie, would you like to introduce yourself and what you've been working on? 
Um, hello, so my name is Ellie Sweetnam and I am a uh, final year master's student in conservation practice and I came up alongside Jane Henderson um, with the concept of disruptive conservation which are visible infills for ceramics. So how did you become interested in this? Um, I think it never was a specific point I think but almost like an amalgamation of ideas that I've had about perception within museums and with objects. So I studied at Camberwell College of Art for my um, undergraduate and it's kind of there that they push the concept of questioning things and probing and extending things um, so I think it was just a development of conversations that I'd had with people about their thoughts of how things should be perceived and I think when you're working on something quite physical a lot of thoughts keep popping up and it was like oh what would happen and how would this be interpreted can you um, introduce us to the topic of disruptive conservation and describe it for us so it's basically a concept. So it's basically exploring authenticity, which is a fundamental concept that conservators always have to deal with. But it has so many different definitions for so many different people and different areas. But I think authenticity is always something that we are striving for, even though it's not one specific tangible thing, really. Um, and I think it's about exploring the fact that conservation isn't neutral and it shouldn't be neutral. And we shouldn't pretend that it's, um, it's neutral. When you look at gap fills that are maybe like beige or more true to life, to me that is deceptive to an audience. We have this concept of that, oh, this object is a representation of a time period that doesn't exist anymore. And I think it almost wipes out time passing and different usages, which then changes the authenticity of an object through its life form. And I think when you have a visual, like a gap fill that is visual and is obviously visual, I think it opens so many possibilities to thinking and experiences within a museum. So we're talking about then ceramics with holes in them that you filled in with something very obvious and something very colourful. Is that right? Um, yes. So I've done it um, with a couple of ceramics before. And I think the thing with disruptive conservation is that it can always be taken or it can be perceived on so many different levels. Like I think you could go and just have like a pink gap fill. And it's the question of could a pink gap fill be more honest in representing like interpretation? And does it help viewers get an alignment of the truths that an object has? But then you could almost make it so things would be maybe a little more tonally like changed. I think so that I think there are levels on how it could be done for an audience as well it doesn't have to be one specific way of doing something it's an exploration so I'd like to ask you about audience responses a little later on but first what do you feel are the benefits of the honest approach as you say in telling an object story how can that be achieved by having visible breakages this is actually strangely a conversation that I was having with my friend's mother and we were talking about about um, historic houses and it also goes back to a paper that I have been reading choosing how like in historic houses or in many objects people love to see that different time periods have happened and they love to see that change within something because ah. it tends to visibly see history happening but then when you have an object I think in a museum it just it puts it in limbo it's almost like it's frozen you've frozen something in time so we're almost stopping history even though we're trying to explain the lifespan of it. Um, so I think in terms of that way, I think it's a really interesting way of getting 
maybe visitors to engage in that or start a conversation of why this is happening. But it's also the fact that conservation, I don't think, should be invisible because it's a lie. You're pretending something. So even in the mending of something is invisible. That's freezing something in time as well, which is something that I just don't agree with. I know that a lot of people might not have the same opinion. Also, I think what's quite interesting to maybe put forward is that I'm not presenting disruptive conservation as everything. I don't think we should do it every single time. But I think if you could have a collection of something and you present it as an alternative, it doesn't have to be the new way of conserving. I don't believe that. That's really interesting. I really like the idea of it being a choice. And I imagine, so you'd make that choice depending on the object with you and depending on the story that it might have. Yeah, I think, um, so this I think was your question four for me as well was if it kind of if it can extend to other areas and I definitely think it can I think it's quite easy to do it in terms of textiles I think visible mending is definitely a concept that's becoming a lot more fashionable now and of good course. but there are obviously there are traditional methods of mending such as like the Japanese method of like shishiko mending which actually um, provides support and stability to areas of damage but I think we had Janet Berry who is the head of conservation for the Church of mm-hmm. England she came and she gave us a really, really interesting talk. She was saying how parishioners of churches are actually the ones that have ownership of the church and the objects within it. But I think spirituality is something that you can't really control how people view or how people feel something. So I always think it would be interesting that imagine if parishioners had an old tapestry that was moth-eaten, but they wanted to mend it with gold. Why not allow them to do that? So I think in a way it extends quite easily into some areas of conservation but for example I've been um, conserving some waterlogged stained glass and I sometimes think how would I visibly mend these and you kind of you almost can't it can work in some areas and it can't in others so it almost becomes like a how you would want to present something or work with something I think so this all sounds very good and very um, emotional what do you feel are the drawbacks of disruptive and visible conservation I sometimes think that it can be questioned about or it can be perceived maybe as quite arrogant. And as you just said, like be seen as quite emotional. It doesn't always sometimes maybe fit in how people approach conservation, which I think is perfectly understandable and perfectly fine. Um, Like a lot of people I know don't really like to approach things with emotion. I 100% do, I think, as we've all just seen. (laughs) I sometimes think as well, like it might not be perceived to be to fit aesthetically within our field um but yeah i think arrogance might be the number one like what rights do we have to be doing this are we adding something that maybe shouldn't be added to are we creating a storyline that is detracting from the actual storyline of what the object should be saying or could be saying but also as well if somebody if someone else's um understanding of authenticity isn't the same as mine then it might be completely not ethical to do this process so i suppose that's that's an interesting um element to this isn't it because as conservators we always try to approach things in the most scientific way that we can conservators are definitely seen to be or it's seen to be like a very neutral field like you're not meant to have a bias towards something and is it our right as conservators to almost add on a storyline personally i don't see it as adding on a storyline i just see it as making an object a whole form and it's just a new way of perceiving it and i think it's like a new way for a museum to provide a narrative so this this sounds 
quite curatorial as well. This is sort of edging into the curatorial zone as well, if we're talking about lucid museums. I think it's really interesting how sometimes, not all the time, obviously, how conservation and curation are quite separate entities within a museum. And I think it would be really interesting to see what would happen if they were merged and what the outcome of that would be. So if we're talking about... um, curation and communication of an object's history I understand this is a very this is at the moment quite a sort of theoretical approach that you're taking but what do you think of the audience response to this approach (laughs) inside or outside of museums I think it becomes really really hard to determine because you can't ever group an audience into one into one entity and they will never go into a, a heritage space in the same way and they won't I think they won't go into it the same and I don't think their outcomes will be the same so I think it's really difficult to to state what an audience's responses would be the conversations that I've had with other people so far definitely range from not liking it and they would prefer a more traditional um, aesthetic outcome but then there are others who think it would be really really interesting to see within a space so I think I don't really like to say what I think the audience's response would be because I don't think it would be the same that's a really good and probably quite realistic answer and I suppose this goes back to what we were talking about earlier on of the sort of expectation of objects and expectation of museums and the stories that um that museums are telling what I would like actually is to hear from people who really dislike it but I would like to not just hear that they dislike it but I would like to hear why because I think museums are spaces that are are seen to hold historical truth like they're physical entities that hold historical truth but actually it would be it's interesting to challenge that but also to challenge people that see that as truth brilliant so i think that's a call for responses really isn't it (laughs) we would like to hear from the listeners please um what do you think of the idea of visual and disruptive um conservation and i think we'll probably be talking about this as well in the episode so hopefully we'll drum up some answers for you Yeah, I would like to hear them. Well, thank you so much, Ellie, for your time. No, thank you for thinking of me. So I found that really interesting because the photos that I've seen so far are like bright pink or bright blue. So really not just visible, but disruptive as she says Uh, it's like a more rebel version of kintsugi you know where it's like (laughs) deliberately visible mend that like celebrates the break it is a very deliberate style and i thought that was really interesting that it it draws attention to it and celebrates it but then like this is like almost like an i was gonna say like a more punk version of it because it like ellie's repairs are very you know in your face um we're going to tweet some photos by the way for a visual but yeah so i kind of felt like it was like a kintsugi parallel in some ways i sort of wanted to be either won over or put off completely but i think i'm both and i think that's what she was obviously she was saying that it's not for everyone and it's not for every time etc etc i found her arguments both for and against quite compelling Uh, i mean i like the point that conservatives aren't neutral does anybody think they are though i mean maybe this is just because i'm quite old (laughs) (laughs) go on 
it, it just surprised me that, that that was still perceived to be a thing. Well, I think it's more... I mean, it leans into the perception of museums as being neutral, which is the whole... Like, it's a whole movement now that museums aren't. Um, yeah. I don't often hear people say that about conservators, though, because I feel like... And this, this, again, could possibly be the kind of public image that we're trying to portray. Like, we've got the lab coat on, we're scientists, we don't do anything naughty, like putting any implied value on things. And it's like... <laughs> we want to make things look good. We don't often want to disrupt or sort of shout about ourselves in what we do like if if our sort of main goal is to make an infill if secretly obviously that we we want it to be visible because that's uh ethical blah 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 if our main sort of emotional goal is to make something look so beautifully um, <laughs> in keeping that it's impossible to see <laughs> then that isn't confrontational it's not a, it's not disruptive i take issue with the idea that it's we want it to be visible because that's ethical actually oh god and i think there are lots of situations in which you might not want it to be visible and okay so i mean this is something that's been talked about for decades in conservation yeah is how far you should make loss your loss compensations visible and there's been so much debate about this and the real quite clear differences in approach depending on the conservation discipline and depending on the type and the age of the object people approach them quite differently mm. i think and and so you know there's there's arisen this six foot six inches yes. rule, which yeah, is yeah, often yeah. talked about although which... i kind of feel we ought to metricate it and <laughs> make it into two meters 20 centimeters or whatever probably but um because i live with someone who's into war games i think of it as painting to tabletop standard so when it's on the table it looks fine but when it's really yes. up close it's like yeah it's that's not that great <laughs> and that is an awesome comparison because that is exactly getting at why you're doing it yeah which is that it works in the context which it needs to work in. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the other ethical issue, if you like, that's not there, I assume, with wargaming and tabletop gaming, <laughs> is that you need to know <laughs> what's original and mm. what's not. Yeah. Um, but there are ways to paint something mimetically, which is the terminology that's used in paintings conservation, is mimetic retouching. So that's retouching that looks like the original. Oh, okay. And is designed to be close to it. People are comfortable with that as long as you can detect what is in painting and what is mm -hmm. not, what's original material. And sometimes that might be because different materials are used. And so um, you can see the differences clearly under a microscope, in UV, all of that kind of thing. Obviously, good documentation is key. But that doesn't mean that the things need to be visible while the object's on display. Again, it's kind of, it depends on the type of object and the kind of circumstances and stuff like that. So when I was doing the Greek galleries, I was really struggling with my approach to loss compensation for these objects, partly because they were objects that were valued for their artistic properties. So with Greek vase painting, there are lots of individual painters who have been identified and there's this whole process of connoisseurship. For example, you might say, well, this is an unsigned um, vase. So quite a lot of the vases were signed by the painters. This one is unsigned, but I can tell from the style of the brush strokes and from the way that the feet have been painted that it's been painted by this vase painter. And so it's very, very similar to the sort of thing that we do in easel paintings mm. where, you know, connoisseurship is really important, partly based on objective and identifiable traits, but also partly based on gut feeling. You know, this just looks like 
the work of this particular painter. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something that's really unusual in archaeological material. And it sets up this really difficult tension between the kind of archaeological approach that you might take and the more kind of paintings-oriented approach that you might take. Because if connoisseurship is so important to Greek vases and the paintings themselves and the depictions themselves are so important, then it kind of pushes you to want to restore them to a much higher degree than you might do otherwise. Otherwise, there's a whole aspect of the object that's missing. And that's one of the things that the objects have always been valued for mm. historically. Um, if you just put blank fills all over everything, then you're losing a lot more than you would be losing on an ancient Egyptian vase, for example. And so I spent a lot of time talking to paintings conservator colleagues about this, mm. um, who, by the way, found it absolutely hilarious how crude um, objects <laughs> conservators retouch <laughs> in painting skills were. Oof. And they were like, so you use acrylics <laughs> and I was like yes are there other things and then you know they'd reel off a whole list of retouching media that don't exist basically uh, uh, don't exist at all in objects conservation it's very interesting um, and they've also been trained to a much higher degree in um, the theory of optics as well and and the ways to and color matching and the way that the eye perceives things and so on so they've just got much higher level skills than i had certainly um, and i learned an awful lot from working with them about thinking about these things but they've also been having their own conversation in paintings conservation about visible retouching mm. and ways to make fills visible from very close up but that look really great at sort of display distance one of my fondest memories is talking to a paintings conservator and examining a painting in a gallery and you know just looking at getting really close to the painting and like looking up at it at an angle that's completely unnatural and just seeing the stippling or the like tiny dots yeah. that make up the actual you know in painted area and it's just like oh that's fascinating yeah so it can be really really effective because if you look at it up close actually it's made of loads of different colors some of which are not even in the area that you're trying to match the yeah. color to but from a distance they blend to create exactly the right effect and that's the thing that i've i've really loved talking to you know other types of conservatives is about and I mean I like doing art but I like doing art and like I like making stuff but I'm not a very good painter as such like I will do a bit of acrylic painting but that's it I, I don't know how to do oils or any of that stuff and I think that's the really beautiful thing about conservation is that we've got such a range of skills and such a range of amazing people and, and I mean also like <laughs> I know that we, we all joke that paper conservators like everything beige but the fact that you can get the right kind of beige for a paper fill <laughs> I, I love you people you are amazing <laughs> this is something they've been talking about for a lot longer in paintings conservation than we have in objects conservation i think probably because they don't have any choice but to think about how you restore areas where there's no guidance about the original mm. you know there's this whole thing that makes objects conservators really squeamish often is well how can we do in painting that reconstructs something when we don't even know what it looked like mm. yeah <laughs> and that's something where paintings conservators don't really have that option they have to do it because yeah. for most people a painting with big holes in it is not acceptable it massively reduces the value mm. of the painting um, not financial value, but, you know, significance. One thing that we haven't talked about is techniques for gap filling. That's It's interesting because I did write that. <laughs> like I got as far as going, materials, all sorts. Yeah, thanks for that, Brain. <laughs> um, mostly because we're... 
mostly because there are so many different types of conservations there's so many different ways of doing gap filling that that it's almost too huge to think about but i guess we can start with what do we do let's maybe start with that because you know we're objects conservators although we work on very different things which i you know think is cool like for me um i've not yet tried to felt a little toupee for someone's uh butt <laughs> on taxidermy i've not done that yet but i look forward to it um but like i do um japanese in uh Japanese tissue infills for like you know webbed feet or wings or you know that sort of thing right I get the plaster out sometimes and I'll you know fill in something on like tiles or ceramics that sort of thing right when you were talking about the materials choices were you thinking about um the choice between using something sympathetic to the materials that you're filling or completely different to the materials that you're filling you're filling for identification reasons both um, and also, I suppose, the technique used to do that. So, for example, with ceramics, mm -hmm. um, I've used plaster and mm. I've used uh, the micro balloons and B72 kind of mixture. Um, but I've also tried making detachable plaster fills, for example. So I did this in 2003 as a student and um, I'm not sure I've ever made detachable plaster fills for a ceramic in an actual job <laughs> so that might tell you how mm -hmm. um, i mean it's basically you just put a separating layer in cling film uh, around the break edges at the point that you're making the fill so that when the fill is dry you can then pop it out but it's quite a pain in the ass because you need to kind of temporarily reconstruct the pot otherwise you're not going mm. to be able to get the fill out again because of various sort of undercuts and things like that so it involves quite a lot more handling and quite a lot more fitting things together and obviously with ceramics ideally you're not mm. going to be putting the break edges together any more than you absolutely have to what you don't want to be doing is constantly reconstructing it taking it apart reconstructing it taking it apart and then finally reconstructing it because you run the risk of abrading the edges and kind of causing more damage so i wonder how useful it is as a technique anyway but as a student certainly I had a go at it and I quite enjoyed the idea that I liked the idea that these were things that you could stick them in with B72 and then they would be easy to take out and you mm. wouldn't have plaster kind of embedded in all the edges of your object. Uh, glass is my nemesis. I've never yet made satisfactory fills for glass. It just looked <laughs> invariably. I am in awe of people who can make nice fills for glass. I think it depends on the situation a lot. There's the uh, there's still the same kind of a butt join issue and there's fraying to consider um and you can use things like mm. adhesives if you're using an adhesive you can kind of fix the edge so it doesn't fray that kind of thing. It depends what you're doing again. The thing that I'm interested in is the choice between using an organic material that matches what you're filling so if you're filling a cotton shirt mm -hmm. would you choose cotton would you choose silk or would you choose polyester that kind of thing so I think before I started my job before I started really studying textiles conservation as a discipline my impression for textiles and well, generally organics actually um, was that one would try to use polyester like polyester threads for example because then it's much much easier to identify the original and then to identify the conservation mm -hmm. but since I started I've more kind of realized that actually 
I much prefer and it's been demonstrated to me that it's there's a great benefit in using things like silk for a silk repair because of the softness of the fibers and the sort of the general qualities of the fibers themselves or the the different materials so that was just a different that's just an interesting kind of comparison between the uh, the ideal of make it different and the actually in practice it's really nice to use fine silk thread instead of fine polyester thread well, again, I guess it's it just depends on, you know, what you're trying to achieve. And sometimes a sympathetic material does need to be quite similar. And I think it it, it does it does depend. Can we talk about damage for a bit? So I keep thinking about the removal of the appearance of damage, the origin of the damage for different mm-hmm. objects, and how it would makes me feel to remove the evidence of that damage. Ooh. Because I so what I'm where I'm coming from is this is what some of the the visible conservation stuff has got me thinking about. So when I'm working with my huge banners, a lot of the old ones are damaged because of their use. So they are, you know, we've got hundreds in our collection that are like pretty in a pretty terrible state at the top and then mostly missing or literal rags at the bottom um Mm. and they are in that situation for the most part because they were buffeted around in the wind and they were taken on marches and they're like silk and giant amounts of you know huge heavy bits of oil paint and all of that and there are fantastic photographs of essential rags still being taken out by wow the members of the union because it was their banner even though you could barely make out any of the you know any of the banner Mm. so some of those have been conserved in the traditional way of you use your blank well-matched infill silk you if you need to do in painting you do it in a blank kind of way you use various different types of methods blah 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 but there are some that have been infilled or just supported with just net yeah for example or just a single layer of the silk crepeline which is really thin and you can see all of the rags still you can see each of the the raggedy bits i hate using that word but it's so descriptive have been stitched on so that you can still see all the gaps and you can still see all the holes and you can Mm. still see the tears and everything and i can't help but like that approach better even though in some ways it's not as strong so it technically maybe it's not as holding it as strongly as if you had a backing of something else Mm -hmm. but I prefer to see the damage I I prefer to see the sort of the fact that it's been whipped around in the in the wind and all of that and so I do think there is quite a lot of the origin of damage that is quite I know this isn't a groundbreaking opinion but at what point does one say that the history of something is stopped? If a vase was pushed off a table, does it matter who pushed it off? Does it matter when it pushed it off? When they pushed it off? It could be an archaeologically... Was it a cat or was it a vandal? <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. Is It might be in this, you know, it might be an important vase owned by an important person and made by an important person. But if it was pushed off a table in an important argument or by an important cat or something, <laughs> do you want... <laughs> Do you want to take away the evidence of that damage? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's uh, that's another interesting thing. I mean, so there it's not, I suppose it's stabilization rather than loss compensation in some ways. And yeah, that, that obviously that's a completely valid approach. And for some things, that is the approach to take. I do feel like that might be 
almost more true for things that have great political significance or like a lot of emotional impact, perhaps. I think it depends on what it adds to the object. I was thinking... Not, not all loss takes away, which sounds weird. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. And I'd like to... I'd, I'd be interested to hear Christina's opinion on that in terms of paintings. I quite like seeing paintings with fold lines and creases and Ooh. cracks that have been conserved, but you can still see the underlying canvas or the, the whatever it is that's been lost has remained lost. For example, the Bronte portrait. Mm. That's still got all of the fold lines from when it was folded up and stuck in an attic or whatever. Oh, interesting. And I actually really like that because it's it sort of it demonstrates that it has gone through various periods of time. It was, you know, enjoyed and then disposed of almost. I don't know the history. I'm just going to say I don't know the history about that. <laughs> I just have vague <laughs> memories. I think, doesn't it come down to which stories you want to tell about the objects again. I mean, objects have kind of multiple lives and are capable of multiple interpretations. And this is one of the big dilemmas for conservators is how you choose which of those to bring out at any one time. I guess you were talking about fold lines and so on in paintings. I guess that's where mm -hmm. your kind of gut feeling comes in, isn't it? Because there is a point yeah. at which something is so damaged that then you can't read it as an image. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes really difficult. And I think part of this is to do with cultural expectations. So again, talking to paintings conservators, one of them has done a lot of panel paintings. And so these tend to be medieval, much, much earlier than the sort of oil paintings on canvas that are what you think of when you think about paintings conservators restoring things. And she said people are much happier to accept big visible losses in medieval panel paintings than they are in a 19th century oil painting even mm. though a lot of oil paintings are actually really, really damaged. And I think a lot of people would be surprised at just how extensive the losses are to the painted mm. surface on a lot of oil paintings. Once, if you ever see any of these things in progress, there are often quite large areas that are being retouched by mm. the conservator. It's not just the odd crack here and there. Sometimes it'll be kind of quite big gaps. And I think this is partly that we're willing to tolerate things looking more broken and more damaged and so on if it's a particular type of object. So if it's not an art object as much, if it starts to be seen as more historical or archaeological, but also just if it's older. One of the questions I was going to put to you was when do we want to see repairs and when do we want to see decay, essentially? Like not necessarily active decay, maybe arrested decay is a good way of putting it because, you know, a lot of conservation is finding a point to pause at. And, you know, it's like how much of a patina are we going to have on this statue? Like how shiny do you want this thing? Because actually, you know, it oxidized or where, where do you take it to and where do you stop? And it's the same with... Uh, loss compensation. I, I just love these conversations. It's so good. And I would love to see more museums have these conversations about things like Ellie's infills and, you know, stuff like that. Like, is, can damage be beautiful? Or do we like damage sometimes? Actually, I really enjoyed the point about like making appropriately chosen blah, blah, infill really obvious, kind of highlights the work of conservators. Like, here it is. This is what we do sometimes and then you may not see this in a lot of them because we do it differently in them but this is part of the unseen work that you can see here temporarily i i mean i'm sure someone out there must have done like a cool display where it's like or i hope someone has uh, where someone has like 
like maybe a dark room and there's like a lit up object and it's a ceramic and then you give everyone goggles and once every 15 minutes you turn on uv lamps or something and then you can oh, wow. see all the restoration work that would be amazing i hope someone's done that and if you haven't you should uh free idea uh health and safety though <laughs> um but like i would love to see that kind of thing right where it's like look there's yeah. a lot of work that goes on that you cannot see i think it's really interesting the difference between choosing not to act, so allowing the damage to be visible by not acting. So, for example, by not adding, you know, the textile infill to the raggedy area of the mm. banner that I was talking about. Choosing not to do that versus doing exactly the same level of work, but adding a disruptive color. Mm. So doing your conservation, but making it a neon netting. <laughs> Yeah. Oh God, don't! That makes it. And my stomach literally just went. Oh God, neon is. <laughs> okay, I took it too far. I took yeah, it too yeah. far. <laughs> See, and and why is it that I react like that to textiles to make like actually disruptive textiles fills, but when it's ceramics, I'm like, yeah, okay, well. You know. Well, I mean, Ellie did make a good point about, you know, like v visible mending and stuff like that. That's uh, like a really big thing now, you know, like people are, you know, making do in mending and they're making, yeah. you know, clothes repairs and all sorts of stuff, you know, really visible. They are a point to look at. It's supposed to draw the eye. It's supposed to add something to the item. And I mean, it's interesting that we don't ever see it like that in conservation although i mean as soon as i see like one of these massive flags that's been very carefully stitched onto a backing and beautifully framed and everything i love standing there and just looking at all the stitches <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know i'm i'm just saying there can be an enjoyment in seeing it a repair as well like i i think that there can be a level of something being oddly satisfying you know but maybe that's just because we're damaged people because we're conservators Today I'm reviewing Pottery and Porcelain Restoration, A Practical Guide, by Roger Hawkins. This is a 2020 Crowwood Press publication, and I'm reading the ebook version, but it's also available in traditional paperback. The book is divided into 14 chapters, plus an appendix and some useful bits like a glossary at the end. The introduction addresses some of the history and public image associated with ceramics conservation, and features the most Mad Max teapot I've ever seen, while recognising the enormous diversity of skills, techniques and materials in the field. It's a refreshing introduction that's honest and grounded in a mixture of experience and professional metacognition. I don't usually care for intros, but this one's actually quite good. The first chapter is the primer in what we mean by terms such as pottery and porcelain, it has a whiff of back to school about it, but it's uh, laced with trivia in a way that keeps it really interesting. I mean, material science is plenty interesting, but I'm only ever so enthused about frit and oxides. I've got to say, though, this chapter is comprehensive and ideal for how to do a visual ID of almost any ceramic type. And that's an absolute delight to see. The images in this book are so nice, and I kind of wish I'd had this on hand years ago. By the way, each chapter is an absolute visual feast, so even the ones I'm not specifically telling you about are richly illustrated and contain some excellent information. Roger hasn't stinged. Chapter 3 is all about the tools and materials that Roger finds most useful in his professional life as a restorer, and this is my favourite part of the whole book. 
it's so rare to hear seasoned conservatives share their secrets, for lack of a better word, of what they use and even how they recommend setting up their workspace. It just fills me with joy. It's a practical, relatively thrifty and very honest guide to setting up a studio space and it's written in a really approachable way. It's not preachy or prescriptive, but it is solid advice. There's also no implied pressure to do ceramics restoration professionally. This advice is just as applicable to any happy amateur doing this as a fulfilling hobby. The chapters on examination, taking things apart and reassembly are all wonderfully practical and an absolute godsend if you, like me, work alone and generally have to figure stuff out on your own and on a budget. This is in contrast to, you know, large institutions with dedicated ceramic specialists and more money for equipment, for example. As someone who occasionally has to brush up on how to deal with pottery, as I deal with a wide variety of materials in a really mixed collection, this is a handy guide to have on hand. It's stuff I already know, but it's a refresher written for and by human beings, and you know what? That doesn't go amiss. I wish more types of conservation had this sort of handbook. Since this is going in our gap fill episode, I should of course point out that yes, there is a chapter on fills. In fact, there are two. One on small ones and one on more substantial missing sections. They're as practical and straightforward as the rest of the book. And of particular use to me is another chapter which is about colour matching, something I definitely need to practice. I'd like to give an extra little shout out to the appendix on starting your own business. It's a quick and dirty guide, to be sure, but but again, a welcome taster for anyone who's thinking about doing this as a job for themselves. In summary, I have to say that I like this book a great deal, um, and I'd like to own a hard copy of it myself one day. It's a friendly, updated version of the kinds of ceramic repair handbooks that I've generally seen around, but that are a little bit out of date now. This is a book that I could have done with as a student or an emerging professional for that matter. It may possibly annoy ceramics conservators a bit as it's, um, it could be seen as, you know, sharing trade secrets or something. Um, Not really. It's just, you know, common sense written down. But I can see how it might not be for everyone. This is a generalist kind of book. It's for someone who'd like to get into ceramics conservation or restoration. And as such, it isn't for someone who's already proficient in that. It's a beginner's book, and that's a good thing. It's absolute gold for anyone who doesn't have a ceramic specialist tutor on hand and is eager to learn. This book has 160 pages, full colour illustrations throughout, and is available for purchase on Amazon for around £25. Dear Jane, when I was a conservation student, my entire class were white. We were, for the most part, white and middle class. Different elements of our upbringing impacted on our interests, which in turn led to an interest in conservation. We talk about wanting to diversify conservation, but I wonder, as a university professor, what stage do you think we need to be reaching out to non-white students to encourage them to come into conservation? Do we write to MPs to encourage more art in primary schools? Do we go and talk to more diverse high schools? This is a huge question, (laughs) probably one which should be answered by more questions. But I'd love your thoughts from years of reading applications about student motivations. 
Dear Anonymous, well, what a brilliant question. And I'm glad you let me off with the, there's probably more questions than answers. In terms of the, t- the conservation classes that, we, that, that I'm involved in teaching, largely they're not entirely white, but there's no question that conservation is a generally white and middle-class profession, as Jenny and Chloe have talked about. There is some diversity in terms of issues like disabilities and neurodiversity, but in terms of other areas, a lot less diversity. I think it's interesting to talk about how we led to having an interest in conservation. And certainly, I can't think of any reason why, when you're doing your outreach work for conservation, you wouldn't reach out to a good range of of school students where you are and even a little bit further away from where you are. I think that you should prioritise any groups of kids who don't have the normal cultural access to the arts and the platforms to get in. Because that cultural capital, that ambition for education and to have interesting and diverse jobs, that's a fire that, you know, anyone can can help light. I also think that reaching out um, as a conservator to school students doesn't have to lead to a career in conservation. I hope it encourages people simply to live their dreams, to imagine that they can be the person they want, to understand that the world isn't just people who get jobs as teachers and perhaps isn't garage mechanics. And I don't mean that rudely. I mean it in the sense of when I was at school, there was an incredibly narrow range of jobs that were ever put in front of me as options. And I think by going out as conservators and doing advocacy at school levels, we can improve people's horizons. However, you asked about non-white students and primary schools. I'm a little bit reluctant to start saying that the issue here is that black students of colour or BAME students, depending on how you phrase it, and and in different countries we use different um, terminology. But I'm a little bit reluctant to say that some students need to apply, that we need to to sort of fix those people who are not applying, because that's never ever the answer, is it? We kind of know that. The problem is always our problem. If we are overly white and middle class, we need to fix ourselves and to deal with and to challenge the infrastructure that has created that situation. Some of the infrastructure that I think creates is to do with pre-course requisites, the requirement to have done so many hours of volunteering. And it's one of the reasons why the course that I influence, I take a stand against making any requirement. I require people to demonstrate an enthusiasm and an interest in the sector, but never to have spent hours because I see that as a hugely burdensome and discriminatory practice in terms of this, the income I think that all of us as conservators can learn to communicate and write about our topics in an inspirational way, and that will diversify the audience of people who come in. I think we can look at simple but important messages and triggers that we put out by ourselves, and we should challenge ourselves. What are the images of conservators that we put out there? When you look at marketing materials for the sector bodies, for your organisations, you know, whose faces can you see? Who are we representing? That's something we need to to do better on, I would say. Because if you don't see yourself in the career, why would you ever start it? Another barrier, I think, to, to conservation careers is the finance of a conservation career. The assumption that you might will do, will do one or two degrees, then possibly volunteer for another year or work in a rotten salary, moving house for another couple of years. And even then, at the end of it all, with the masses of student debt, is that a job where they're expecting to live off not very much more above minimum wage. So I think that is a huge barrier to people who don't have financial reserves, 
people for whom your family seriously need you to earn money and be independent and contribute to the family, which again is not necessarily entirely um, a racial issue, but in any society where systematic racial discrimination exists, which is pretty much all of them, then this is always going to weed out families for who for, who have greater poverty. And when poverty is one of the many prices we pay for racism, then this is clearly going to be discriminatory. I'm not sure that I want to write to an MP to encourage more arts in primary school, although I might do that as a person in the same way that I would do it to encourage visits and music. I'm not sure that that's specifically an issue for the conservation profession, but perhaps you could come back and, and, and tell me why you think that's wrong. But I think realistically, it's about making our profession more open to a range of students. And honestly, I think we have to tackle some of the less acceptable sides of the volunteering intern culture where people are expected to work without money or to work in expensive places for salaries that do not cover your living cost. The last thing I need to address, and it's not by any means the last thing that, on this topic, is that you asked about um, applications and student motivations. Interestingly, the student application forms these days are becoming more and more formalised and processed by people in admissions. But we still often get a chance to see applications because students coming into conservation are just so diverse. And people in the Office of Admissions <laughs> can't really deal with conservatives because they look at these amazingly eclectic careers that we have and just don't recognise us in their normal academic ways. So I do still see a lot of application statements. I, I've been thinking back and I think... I mean, you don't know from an application whether a student is a, a person of colour or a black and minority ethnic student. You can't tell that. There's obviously sometimes there's clues and hints, I think. And I, I haven't checked because I don't know I could check. But I think I can only remember students referring to their heritage in a sense that would be a heritage of a person of colour has been um, black and minority ethnic students or, or students of colour. And two or three students have mentioned that as a reason why they want to move into conservation as a point of personal pride that they feel they want to represent their communities and to act to represent and to protect specific communities and collections. And I can only say from my perspective, that's a, a strength in an application. I was concerned, you can tell from my icon, that I'm a, a white, man, you know, I'm a professor, so that counts me as a middle-class conservator. So I have asked another voice to speak, not because I want to offload the work or the responsibility, but because I think on questions like this, we can't simply centre white voices. That doesn't mean that the white conservatives don't have the responsibility for making our profession as diverse and as welcoming as we possibly can. And that does mean changing some big things, challenging some big topics about the, the setup and the presumptions of conservation. When I'm not being the C-words agony ant, I've been thinking more and more about how conservation has been used as a justification for colonial practices. And I'm quite concerned about that, that sense that if we don't challenge it, then we accept it. Because, you know, white Western museums don't get to keep things because we look after them better. Because burning someone's house down and stealing their things is never looking after things better. Stripping things from their community is never looking after th things better. Taking away all the context and meaning for things by removing them from the people who, for whom they are important, vital, symbolic or, or meaningful and, and taking them away from those places, that is never how we look after collections. So I think as a conservation community, we have to work hard to distance ourselves from past practices. 
That is my personal opinion and one I've been trying to write about in my works. So I'm going to leave it there and I hope that I'm able to also hear from Neris, who I also passed this question to. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the challenge and provocation that was inherent in it. Your memories are short and you haven't been listening. Belly Magina, Lewis Johnson, Christopher Capesa, Christopher Alder, Stephen Lawrence. When faced with these monumental times, many of you have asked the victims, what can we do? I have suggestions. Number one, educate your own damn selves. No oppressed person owes you the emotional onus of explaining the history of their exploitation and trauma. You are demanding their free labour. It is literally at your fingertips. Google it, bing it, duck duck go it. Take the responsibility to educate yourself. Number two. Investigate yourself and your institution. Every context is different and the hard work of determining your own racist complicity is a complex matter and it is your duty. It has to be difficult. If it's not tough, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, you're not doing it right. Do the work. Number three. Know that as soon as you inform yourself and decide to actively support basic human rights for all, you become a part of the solution, no matter your past actions. Number four, claiming allyship to Black Lives Matter. Statements are like bread, lovely when fresh, but stale within a day. MOUs are far more meaningful. What binding social contracts will you and your policymakers adhere to now, today, to keep you accountable in the future? This is by far the most important, otherwise your actions are just another round of bandwagoning, performative and empty gestures, whilst people that look like me and my family continue to be murdered, sidelined and fail to flourish. Do better. As usual, we welcome your comments, questions and corrections on the show. This time I'd just like to add a quick thing from Christina. We have linked in the show notes for this episode to a couple of articles about the work that she's been talking about, but they are behind a paywall. If you have trouble accessing any of them, do get in touch with Christina and she might be able to hook you up with a PDF. Hope that helps. Feel free to get in touch with us. We love hearing from you. Hi, and welcome back to the Benchwork Bar. I'm Amanda Richards, your bartender today, and today we're going to be making the pulp fill. So what we're going to need first is two and a half ounces of bourbon. There we go. Today I'm using Bib and Tucker's. It's a new favorite of mine. All right, so two and a half ounces into a shaker with ice. So into the measuring cup, there we go. And then one ounce of fresh orange juice. And half an ounce of lemon juice, freshly squeezed. And half an ounce of the smoked herb simple syrup. 
then a dash of orange bitters. And we'll go ahead and shake it for 30 seconds, just until the whole shaker is frosty. Once it is fully shaken, then you pour the whole thing into a prepared glass with a sprig of rosemary, a cherry, and a slice of orange. All right, and that is the pulp fill. For our mocktail version, we're going to start with four ounces of orange juice, freshly squeezed, two, and four, half an ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice, and half an ounce of smoked herb simple syrup. Then on top of ice in your shaker, shake it again for 30 seconds. And again, we'll just pour this straight from the shaker into your glass, garnish it with rosemary, a cherry, and your orange slice. And there you have it, the pulp fill and the mocktail. I hope you enjoy. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. Well, that's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're the C word, and you'll be listening to Chloe Rumsey, Christina Rosaic, and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about light. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Misik, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. I'm glad to hear, Christina, you advised me to use epoxy and glass micro balloons because that's what I was thinking as well for the reasons that you outlined. No, I advised you to put it in the bin. I mean... <laughs> <laughs>